Now, let me try and remind us of where we've been so far in the book of Revelation. Um, If you're new to Revelation, here's where we've been so far. So right back at the start in chapter one, we thought about some things that we need to know before we tackle and approach Revelation. Three things that the book of Revelation is. I'm going to test you. What was number one? Revelation is a, a letter, fantastic, which means it was written to specific people at a specific time. So remember we were thinking about the phrase, it cannot mean to them what it doesn't mean, sorry, it, doesn't, it cannot mean to us what it doesn't mean to them. And it was written for us and to them. And we need to get that distinction really good in our minds. Revelation is a letter. Number two, Revelation is a prophecy, fantastic. That means God's words given through one of God's people to his people. So that means these are God's words, this is God speaking, and so we can listen up as we go through. And as we go through this, we need to remember that Revelation isn't linear, so it's not this happens, then this, then this, then this, but rather it's a bit all over the place, and um, we kind of look at it at different angles and see lots of different things going on, and that will be made clear as we go through over the next um, couple of weeks. So Revelation is a letter, it is prophecy, and the third one, Revelation, is a apocalypse. Fantastic. This is, go- this is going to get louder and louder every week. By the end of the, by the, end of the series, there's going to be shouts of letter and prophecy and apocalypse. Now, apocalypse simply is something that's hidden being revealed or being made known. So we've been thinking a bit about the idea of going behind the scenes, remember? You can go and see how everything works, and God invites you in to see what's going on in the world and what is to come. Now, if you were here the very first week, we thought a bit about the structure of Revelation. Do you remember that? And we have come to the end of part one. There's three parts. We've come to the end of part one. So we've seen the the introduction. We've seen the letters to the seven churches. We've seen the throne room. Remember, we've got at the center and loads of things around, worshiping, and, and the lamb that was slain was a lion. That's kind of part one. We've done that. We're now starting into part two. And part two is full of lots of judgments. And um, remember the seal that we've just been singing about. Fantastic song. As the seals are open, we're going we're gonna to see God's judgment today as it comes out and his salvation for the world. And we get to see God's um, plan revealed in three different ways. So you've got, the, you've got the seals, you've got the trumpets, and you've got the bowls. All three, three different ways of looking at the same thing. Remember, it's not linear. And there's a little interruption in the middle in part two. And then part three... You've got the destruction of Babylon, you've got the beast and um, the kind of final battle and, and, the, and the marriage of heaven and earth coming together, the final paradise. That's where we're going, that's where we've been, that's where we are. Is that helpful? Good. Let's crack on with today. So open up your Bibles and uh, we're in Revelation chapter 6, 7 and a bit of 8 and we're going to kind of read it as we go through. Um, there's there's going to be quite a lot of flicking, so, um, so I hope, hope you're ready with your fingers to, to flip lots, because that's going to be really useful. So at the end of last week, we were left with this big cliffhanger, weren't we? There's this scroll with seven seals on it. And remember, John goes and, and he weeps because no one can open this scroll. And in the scroll, we're told as we go in Old Testament and things, it's, it's the revelation of God's plan for the world, his salvation, his judgment as it, as, it, as it takes place, both now and to come. So naturally, we want to see what's in the scroll. 
even though no one could help him. And then he looks and he sees Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the one who can open the scroll because he's worthy. He is. And now, in chapter 6, 7, and a bit of 8, we're going to see these seven seals opened and this scroll revealed so that we get to see what is on the inside as God takes us behind the scenes and shows us what's going on in his plans for judgment and for salvation. And today's message, I think, is going to be a challenge to our comfortable Christianity because if anything, these chapters are going to show us that there's a fight going on in the world, a fight. There's more going on than we know, like we thought about last week. Now, Revelation, as we said, is, is rich in Old Testament language. So the better you know your Old Testament, the more rich Revelation is going to be as you read it. And one of the great things about Revelation is, pretty much, there's nothing in Revelation that hasn't already been said in the Bible. So, today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 24 a lot Um, So you might want to keep a finger in Matthew 24. We're going to be flicking back and forth. And here, Jesus basically says exactly the same as what happens in chapter 6. Pretty much like for like what's going on. Jesus there is telling his people about what's going to happen in, in the end days before the final day. So we're going to use that and we're going to see what's going on. Just in case you thought John, the guy who wrote Revelation, was smoking something a bit strong and... uh, You know, it was a bit off his face. Jesus says these exact same things back in Matthew 24. So that's where we're going. So we're going to work through the seven seals. We're going to see God's judgment and salvation. We're going to think about how it applies to us. And then we'll call it a day. Okay? Here we go. So let's look at the first four seals. So this is in Revelation chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Here we go. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the air. Okay, so we've opened the seals. We've got the first four seals here. We've got four horses and four riders. Okay, they've each got different colors. Okay, and we learn things about them here, don't we? Now, some people have said that these uh, riders are, are Jesus, but I think that can't be true as we read it. Um, 
because we're going to see as we go through, that's, that's, that's really clear, because ultimately they're bad, aren't they? They sound bad, really bad, in fact. They're causing suffering, they're causing pain, they're causing death. So this, this isn't talking about Jesus here. This is something against, this is something bad, this is something down. This is a fight that's going on, forces in the world that are bigger than we are. So let's work through each of these four horses. So first of all, you've got the white horse in verses 1 and 2. And, and it describes him there as he's got a bow, he's got a crown, it says he's bent on conquest. Now this horse is the Antichrist. We're going to think about the Antichrist coming in, in the weeks to come. Basically someone who opposes Jesus, sets himself up against Jesus. Um, someone who is, this is someone who is imitating Jesus. It's like Jesus, but not fully there. How do we know this? First of all, let's flick back to Matthew 24. And we're going to see verses 4 and 5, what Jesus says. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now, this horse and rider is similar to Jesus, but it's not the same as Jesus. And we know this because later on in Revelation 19, I hope you're with me. Let me read you Revelation 19, verse 11 onwards. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Okay, we've got another white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And it goes on. That there is an image of Jesus. And so you've got one horse and rider, the white horse here in Revelation 6, which is, has a bow and a crown, a bow, key. And then you've got this white horse rider in Revelation 19 who's, who's got a sword, which is the word of God, and a crown riding a white horse. Very similar, isn't it? But it's not quite the same. It's really subtle. And we might have missed it if we, if we just read past. And I think this is really important. It's one of the ways that the enemy attacks God's people today is through false teaching. That is teaching outside of the word of God that doesn't stand up. Perhaps outside of the church, we see people denying Jesus in lots of ways, or people perhaps softening it and saying Jesus is only one of many ways to get to the Father. Or maybe inside the church even, like even when we've got the scriptures in front of us, you see kind of heresies, people who have added truth to the scriptures, people who have taken out things they don't like. And perhaps that's done in clear, visible ways, but we're all guilty of it in some ways, aren't we? Because we don't like parts of the Bible, so we kind of ignore them or put them away to one side. And one of the ways that the enemy works is by distorting and twisting and changing truth. And so here, this rider goes out into the world and deceives. It looks like Jesus not the same as Jesus. How can the Christians stand in the face of the white rider to proclaim, proclaim Christ alone? To stand firm on the truth, even when it costs, even when it's hard. Then we get the second horse, and this one is red. This is in verses 3 
and four. This horse is given power to take away peace and make people kill each other. This horse is all about war, isn't it? Now flip back to Matthew 24. We're going to go back again. And um, in, in verses six and seven, it says this, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, says Jesus, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This rider comes with war. We see that in a world so clearly, don't we? Particularly at the moment, what's going on in Ukraine. Full, large-scale war. Country versus country. Kingdom versus kingdom. It's pride and selfishness. And a low view of people. But even within like, our own country, we can see like, the polarization of people, can't we? People who hold different views, and there is hate and there is hurt. And we've seen that in so many, in so many ways over the years, haven't we? Or even within our own lives, war looks like anger, perhaps. Hate, hurt against our brothers and sisters. And we know those feelings, don't we? Often a whole bunch of emotions bubble up as anger, particularly for us guys, I think. It's a real challenge. How can a Christian stand firm in the face of the red horseman who has power in the earth? Here's what the Christian can do is to proclaim the gospel of peace. The gospel is not about dividing or separating, but bringing together and unity. That's true for the world. That's true for our relationships. Love one another as I have loved you. Allow it to change you and fill you and free you. And then we get the black horse in verses 5 and 6. Now this horse is a bit weird. Carrying scales. And um, it kind of has this phrase, doesn't it? A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Basically, what's going on there is that there's, there's, there's famine. The people can't get what they need. Like, you can't buy wheat and barley for that much. There's famine. However, do you see, there's not famine of everything because it says, do not damage the oil and the wine. That's really interesting, isn't it? I'm not entirely sure I fully understand what this is about still. But I think there's, there's something here about, in the world, we're given what we want, but there's, there's, there's plenty of what we want, but lack of what we need. Does that kind of make sense? Maybe that's, maybe that's with food, like quite literally, but maybe more generally in life. So back in, back in Matthew 24, in um, uh, verse 7 and 8, we read this, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains from Jesus' mouth. You can simultaneously in life have, have nothing of what you need. Good food, good friends, good family, a loving relationship with a partner if you want that, or contented singleness. You can have none of that and simultaneously have everything that you want. You know, the momentary, the, the fleeting, the temporary. I don't know if that's what I'm saying, but I think that's, that's my best bet at the moment. We can chat about it afterwards if you want. How can the Christian counter that? 
engaging in meaningful conversations, by showing hospitality, having genuine relationships that engage in conversations. I don't know, I'm working on that one, if I'm honest. And then here's number four horse. This is the pale horse. The, the word pale kind of means like greeny yellowish. It's like a sickly color, you know, when someone's a bit ill. Um, that's what this horse looks like. In verses seven and eight, this is death, and Hades is close behind, and it's killing by famine and by plague. Disease and death, we see that rampant in our world, don't we? And I'm sure you know of loved ones that have been hit by cancer or Parkinson's or whatever it is. And it's really hard. It's like, this world is full of flawed health. And this here is kind of death and disease that, that laughs in the face of our hospitals and modern healthcare. Because we try and prevent death, we try and stop death, but death still wins, doesn't it? You can't cheat death. You can, you can prolong it, but you can't get out of it. And the danger is that when we suffer, when we experience these kind of lapses of health, it, it robs our joy, doesn't it? And, and it is horrible and terrifying and horrific. And yet everything is stripped out from us and it can leave us feeling hopeless and without anything. And yet the Christian can stand firm in the face of disease and ultimately death. Christians can pray in faith for healing. God tells us to. Doesn't mean he will, but he might because he can. And it means that we can suffer with joy because we know there's more going on than just, oh, death is the end. If you get cancer, that's it. Your life's over. No. God can use you in your cancer to bring about incredible things. And it's horrible and it's hurting and it's God can counter these four horrible horsemen, horsemen going out into the world and, and his people can stand strong in the face of them. As war rages, as famine takes over the world, as, as peace is nowhere to be seen, and as disease hits and death kills, God's people can stand strong still because God has shown you what's going on behind the scenes. He says, this is not all there is. There is more going on than you can imagine. So that's the first four seals. I'm going to tell you this. It gets worse before it gets better. But it does get better at the end. Okay. Seal number five. Let's read uh, chapter six, verses nine to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Persecution for us here is the odd word or the person ignoring you. But around the world, brothers and sisters are slaughtered for their faith in Jesus. Or tortured for their faith in Jesus. 
And here you see the, the martyrs with God crying out. Saying, how long? Can you sort this all out? Can you fix it all and bring about perfection? How long, God? They're given a white robe, purity. And they're told to wait, told to wait. Until, sadly, more Christians will be killed for their faith. And we see this in, in Matthew 24, verse 9. It says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is the reality, isn't it, in our world today. We've got it pretty easy in the UK, but it's not true all over the world. And then we get the sixth seal in verses 12 to 17. Let's read it. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, it's worth saying that the, that the four first four seals, the four horsemen that we've seen, are true, I think, everywhere, always. So they're happening right now. We can see that here right now, can't we? Persecution, the, the martyrs, and natural disaster, as we see here, are true in some places at some times. And so here we've got, we've got earthquake, we've got disaster, we've got what seems like creation folding up. It kind of sounds like the end of the world, really, doesn't it? It sounds pretty terrifying. Back in Matthew, 27, uh, Matthew 24, verse 7, it talks about earthquakes in various places. We read that verse earlier. And everyone hides. It's got a list there of basically everyone, isn't it? Everyone hides in the mountains, like hiding in these caves, like just crying out to the mountains, like, fall down so that we can be safe in the like bowels of the mountains so that we can be safe. Everyone hides. Why? Because they don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb, the anger of Jesus. And at the end of the sixth seal, we're left with this question. Did you see it in verse 17? For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question. And who can withstand it? Who can stand? And I want to talk about God's wrath because there's a shift in churches, a lot of churches now where God's wrath is kind of removed from the picture, his anger, his, his judgment for sin. It, it's removed. And so the teaching from the scriptures is all the, the nice parts. The songs are all the good bits. The nice bits, the easy bits perhaps. And yet the judgment of God, the wrath of God, 
is kind of overstepped a little bit, missed out perhaps, or, or ignored. And yet as we read the scriptures, it's like, yes, the Bible is full of the beautiful and the glorious and the praiseworthy and the good. But you just got to look at the lips of Jesus and see that it is also full of the judgment and the wrath and the terror of God for which he should be feared. And as Christians, how, like, how do we take that? How do we take God's wrath? Because we kind of divide up his love and wrath, don't we? They, they can't be together. If God is loving, he can't be full of wrath. Maybe we think God's intolerant. Who is he to say, I'm going to judge you? Who is he to know my heart and my life? We get to put God on trial and we get to ask him what he's like and what he's doing and what he's up to and his standards of morality, but he doesn't get to put me on trial. And we, we kind of hate this idea of God's wrath, don't we? And yet the Bible is full of it, the blessing and the curse. Why do we face his wrath? Because the scriptures say that by nature, we are all objects of his wrath, his anger. Why do we face God's anger? Because of our rebellion against him, the scriptures say. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is like, as we sit there and like, I know, I know right now you're sitting there and you're like, this is something easy. And it's, I don't know, something in, like your gut is like, oh, yeah. You feeling like that? I am, because I'm saying it. But here's the thing. We need God's judgment because of our sin. Because he is just and will do what is right. Sin must be dealt with. And that is fair. And that is good. And it is ultimately loving. I think. His wrath and love are not apart, but together. It's loving for God to judge. Because without the wrath of God, we wouldn't see our need for the mercy of God. A cat, my wife, can I borrow your engagement ring? You can ooh at this. Oh, it's very sparkly. I went and uh, just down the road at Angela Rose and bought Cat's engagement ring. Um, when was that? When was it? A while ago, and um, and I was looking and um, like trying to figure out which engagement ring I was going to get her. And this one kept standing out to me, shiniest. Okay. And so I looked at it and I was like, okay, I want I want this one. And um, and uh, went up to the desk, and he got it out, and um, he didn't he didn't just put it on the cabinet. And was like, right here, have a look at it, have a good look. They give, they give you a magnifying glass so you can see, like, the diamonds and the, I don't know, the gold and whatever. He didn't just put it on the worktop. He got out this big black cloth. And he put the beautiful diamond ring on the black cloth. Why? So that it looks even more spectacular and even more beautiful than, than it did without it. And, and as we see the backdrop of what we deserve for our sin, God's anger and judgment, as we see the, the largeness of that, if anything, it expands and makes even more beautiful what Jesus has done for us, no? And as we look at Jesus, we're like, he has saved me <laughs> from this quagmire, muddy puddle of a life 
or I try my best and I don't do a great job. And How beautiful, Jesus, that you would die in my place and remove my sin and take God's judgment. Because it's not an, God's wrath is not the end. And that's often when we're left feeling that unsettledness inside of us. God's wrath is not the end because Jesus steps in. And we're going to see this right now. And it is spectacular. As we read about Jesus now, imagine him sparkling in front of a black backdrop. Who can stand? Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. See there, God holds back these forces at work in our world until people can be saved, until people can be rescued from his judgment to come, from his wrath. And then the attention goes to this, to this number, doesn't it? The 144,000, which I think basically is a, is a complete number, basically, if you want a summary. Some religions have, have, have claimed that this is like a narrow group. There's, a, there's 144,000 people who are going to go to heaven and you've got to be in it. It's like an exclusive group. Good news is that's not true. And here's why. Remember, numbers are really important in Revelation, in apocalyptic writing. It's weird to us. It was normal to them. 12 times 12. You remember we, we looked at that? Two 12s. We've got 24 elders around the throne. or bow down. 12 uh, tribes of Israel. 12 disciples. 10 is a really important number in Revelation. It basically means lots. And often in Revelation, you get 10 times 10 times 10, which means lots and lots and lots. And so here, if you're good at maths, anyone, anyone work it out? 12, 12, 10, 10, 10. Anyone got that? I'll leave that with you. You can think about it. But here we've got all God's people represented by this number. A lot, a lot, a lot. All God's people. Do you get that? I think that's what he's saying. And I think that's how the people would have read it in the first place. They wouldn't have thought that was an actual number. And there's lots of reasons why, which we don't have time to go in now. So God holds back these forces. We go to 144,000. We see this group of people. The good news is you don't have to work hard to make sure you're in an exclusive group of 144,000. Why? Because what happens next? Verse 9. After this, I looked... And what's there? There before me was a great multitude that no one can count. From every tribe, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just like back in chapter 4 or 5, wherever it was, when John hears a description of Jesus as a lion, the Lion of Judah, and then he looks and he sees the realization of what he hears, a lamb slain. So here, we hear, John hears the description of God's people, all God's people, lots and lots and lots, and then he looks and he sees the actual realization of it, a great multitude that no one can count. And what are they doing? Who are these people? One of the... One of, one of the uh, one of the elders asked, doesn't he, who are these people? He says they're dressed in white. Washed, in, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Because the blood of the lamb brings purity. Complete forgiveness. Freedom from sin. Freedom from wrath. Freedom from judgment. They're safe and they're secure with Jesus as their shepherd. It's a diverse group of people from every language and tribe and tongue and nation. And they will sing. They will sing together. And so the, to answer the question, who can stand the wrath of the Lamb? God says, my people can. And if you're a Christian, you can withstand the wrath of the Lamb, which is fierce and fiery and hot. You can withstand it because he's paid your debt. He stands out as dazzlingly beautiful and bright in the black cloud of your sin. And he is the one who has spilt his blood so you can be dressed in white. Jesus says, my people can stand. All the horses eventually lose. And God's people are left singing. In the face of False truth, God's people can stand and sing. In the face of war, God's people can stand and sing. In the face of famine and without, God's people can stand and sing. In the face of disease and death, God's people can stand and sing. Why? Because God has shown them what's going on. And they know it and they believe it. And then we get seal number seven. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Out of these seven seals comes the seven trumpets. And that is what we'll pick up on in two weeks' time. Let's pray.
Father, we feel the force of destruction and evil in our world today, and we know it and we're aware of it. And it makes us shudder. Like we, we feel it. And yet, thank you that this is not the only story. Thank you that behind the scenes, you're bringing about something glorious and spectacular. And Father, we're amazed that you would gather us in your people, that you would wash us clean by the blood of the Lamb and call us to be yours, free from your judgment. And we look forward, Father, to the day when we'll be standing around the throne and joining the elders and the creatures, praising you and singing. Help us to sing now in the face of destruction and evil and fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who started our faith and the one who 